everybody. This is Nate with Rooted in Revelation podcast, um, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation in all of life. And with me, Patrick Hines. Uh, he's a pastor. Um, Patrick, maybe you could tell my listeners and me a little bit more about yourself. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm the pastor of Redwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee, and uh, I've been married for coming up on 25 years, and I have 10 children. Um, and we recently left the PCA and uh, joined uh, Vanguard Presbytery, and uh, that's been a, a real blessing uh, so far. Um, a, lot of, a lot of wonderful people there, and um, really just trying to kind of refocus uh, our attention on uh, the Great Commission, doing outreach and evangelism, and really instead of fighting battles that biblically ought to be easy and slam dunks um, and just focusing more on uh, exposition and uh, shepherding the congregation and trying to help with church plants. In fact, I just got back from preaching at a church plant that Vanguard's planning out in Clarksville, uh, Tennessee. Uh, Reformed Faith Presbyterian Church is a wonderful group uh, of people out there. They have about 40, 45 people on a Sunday and um, just I'm on the provisional session of that church, which is kind of hard, but I, I preached on elders out there. I'm like, you guys need your own elders. Um, so we've been praying that God would raise up qualified men to be there. But um, so that's basically me. I'm not overly interesting, um, but I just uh, I do my pastor thing and my family thing. And, um, and God's been been nothing but good to me my whole life. So. And have you been a Christian your whole life or was there a time you weren't? Um, I was raised by very devout, godly Christian parents um, who took me to the Evangelical Free Church uh, in town there. And it was a very fundamental, very sound uh, church in that way. And um, I made a profession of faith when I was about 16 years old and was, was baptized there by immersion. Um, but I don't think that I was really converted until I was about 18, because that's when things really changed. Um, there was all of a sudden a very deep sense of... Um, you know, Patrick, you've fooled everybody but God, and um, you're, you, you don't know me, and I did the only thing I, I knew to do, and that was to start reading my Bible, and, and God really directed me into his word when I was about 18, and that's when I really understood saving grace, and I, I really understood that there's nothing I can add to the gospel, and it wasn't until shortly after I got married, I got married when I was 22, right while I was still in college, that I started kind of what you described, started reading R.C. Sproul. I started listening to the White Horse Inn radio program. And every time I listened to that program, I'd, I'd have to get two or three more books and start reading all the really good reform guys and just really got my, my theology anchored in the word of God and, and became all the way reformed uh, in a few years after that. So, yep. That's great. And you said you have 10 kids? I do. <laughs> yeah, I tell, Karen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tell people they're they're all single births. There are no twins, no adoptions, and we've only been married once. <laughs> wow, yeah. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So yeah, so for the listeners, we are gonna be talking about covenant theology. Um, this will be a really uh, great opportunity, I hope, for for you guys that are listening. I know a lot of friends and family have talked to you about this very topic, but obviously I'm not the most equipped lay person to talk about it. So thankfully we have Patrick Hines and he's, I, I would say very qualified and uh, uh, yeah, man. So what exactly, I mean, what, what's a good place to start? Where would you like to start in regards to maybe what, what is covenant theology? Yeah. Uh, the best place to start, if people want to want to start someplace that that's really helpful, um, a really good summation, I would, I would just recommend look at chapter seven of the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
And that, that whole chapter, you know, I, I still remember walking through that for the first time and looking at the, the passages. And I was thinking that might be a good thing to do is just kind of walk through this and look at some of the key passages and, and also describe kind of the basics of all of human history is divided um, into, not, not, not chronologically, but there are two covenants, uh, two major covenants. There's the covenant of works. Um, it's also referred to as the, the covenant of life. And just, just for your listeners, the reason it's sometimes referred to as covenant of works versus covenant of life, when it's called the covenant of works, it's emphasizing the condition of eternal life. And when it's called covenant of life, it's emphasizing the reward for that obedience. So there's covenant of works or covenant of life. And that is a, a covenant that God enters into with Adam and all of Adam's posterity in him. And you see it manifested first in Genesis chapter 2, um, verse 16 and 17, real, real key passage. But, but before we get into the key text, I just want to read real quick from the Westminster Confession. This is probably sure. the best place to start, chapter 7.1. Um, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could not have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Okay, so God voluntarily condescends and interacts with man as his image by way of covenant. Okay, now, so as I said, there's basically two major covenants in scripture. Now, people immediately hear that and think, but I thought there's like a whole bunch of covenants in scripture, aren't there? Like there's the Noahic covenant and then there's the Abrahamic covenant and then there's the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. And we'll talk about that in a moment. There, there's a real there's a real simple reason why we speak of one covenant of grace. I think that'll be clear as we look at some of the passages, why we the, the Bible forces us to speak that way. So 7.2, the first covenant God made with man was a covenant of works. Okay, so, so there the confession is using covenant of works, emphasizing the condition. I say that because the catechism asks the question, and question, I think it's question 11, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man, the estate where he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him. So don't, don't let that difference of terminology throw you off at all. It's just one's emphasizing the condition, the other's emphasizing the reward if the condition is met. Okay, so the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Okay, so the condition in the first covenant is perfect and personal obedience. And I think another one thing that's very important to know about the first covenant, about the covenant of works, is that it's not based on grace. God's interactions with man prior to the fall are not based on grace. And that's extremely important um, that people do not make that mistake. Um, because often people will say, no, no, all of God's interactions with man are all on the basis of grace, even Adam before the fall. And that's that's a very dangerous thing. It sounds like it exalts grace. But one of the things that good reformed theologians have pointed out in recent decades is that if you say that there's grace acting everywhere, then in effect, you have grace nowhere. And as a matter of fact, a works principle everywhere. So the first covenant is purely based upon obedience, and it has to be a perfect personal and perpetual obedience to God's command. And so just to go to the word of God here on uh, what this is talking about, Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17 says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So there you have the, the statement in scripture of the covenant of works. Now, in recent decades, you have the federal vision heresy, and I, and I, I don't use that word lightly, but it is a heresy. It, it is a, a fatal defection uh, from the gospel. You have them and you have others saying, well, th th there's not an explicit promise of eternal life here. There's only, there's only a threat uh, to disobedience. But one of the things that God expects us to do when we read his word, one of the principles that's laid out, question 99 of the larger catechism, what are the rules that are to be observed when we read the commandments of God? Anywhere a command of scripture prohibits something, the contrary duty is implied. For example, think about the Ten Commandments where um, they're, they're stated as negatives. You shall not commit adultery. Is not merely a prohibition against committing adultery. It's also the positive commandment to preserve our own chastity and the chastity of our neighbor. Uh, the prohibition against coveting, you shall not covet, is not merely saying you shall not want something that belongs to your neighbor. It's also the positive command that you are to be content at all times with all your circumstances. Uh, in fact, I remember reading the shorter and larger catechisms on the commandments and looking up all those proof texts and thinking, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? Because I always ask what is required, what is forbidden, what is required, what is forbidden. The 10th commandment forbids all discontentment with our outward estate. I remember thinking, okay, um, I definitely need someone else's righteousness to go to heaven for sure, um, if that's the case. <laughs> because what those commandments require is far greater um, than the mere outward conformity. And we know, of course, Jesus explained that to people in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he explained it. Many of those people probably thought that they had kept some of those commandments. And he points out, no, 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 it, it, it extends to your motives, your thoughts, your attitude, um, everything that goes on in your mind, um, all, all of that is, is required of those commandments. You, you are to obey God in thought, word, and deed, not merely outwardly. So anywhere um, a promise is made uh, for obedience or a threat is made to disobedience, the contrary promise is always implied. Okay, and that's one thing people seem to, to kind of miss here. They say, well, there's no, there's, no th there's no promise of life here. It's only a threat. But I just would encourage people to notice at the end of Genesis chapter three, after Adam falls into sin, notice what happens, what is said at the end of Genesis three. It says in Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Had Adam succeeded in that temptation, had he succeeded and not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life and he would have been confirmed in glorified eschatological life for the rest of eternity. People ask me all the time, you know, Pat, is it? Is it going to be possible for us to sin and, and fall again in heaven? No, because once you eat from the tree of life, you live forever. You're confirmed in that glorified condition. Okay, so you see even uh, in the punishment, as it's stated here, you see the promise of life had been implied all along. Okay, so that's why it's based on that passage there. That that's why the Westminster Confession says the first covenant that was made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, to all of his descendants, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience, okay? So when Adam sinned against God there in the Garden of Eden, it was, we all sinned with him. You know, think about uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, um, teaches this very clearly. Uh, um, if I can do this, if I can type right. 
That's 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, and so what Paul's explaining here is that this is the reason everybody dies. Everybody dies because everybody is in Adam's federal headship. Okay, Adam was the representative of the entire human race. And the thing is, had he obeyed God and had he withstood that temptation, he actually would have redeemed Eve because Eve, Eve had sinned herself, but Adam represented even her. You know, it's, it wasn't Adam and Eve that, that brought the sin into the world. It was Adam, Adam as the federal representative of the human race, just as Christ becomes the federal head of, of all of the elect. And that's what uh, Romans 5 goes on to describe there. But so back to the Westminster Confession. So that, that's the covenant of works. One of the things that's very important to notice as well about the covenant of works, people will say, well, there's nothing there about Adam's posterity, though. Um, but, but the thing is, Adam and Eve should have fallen dead by the hand of God at the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. As soon as they ate, um, they should have fallen dead right there. But God withholds that curse of death upon them and instead uh, makes the first grand announcement of the gospel. There in Genesis chapter three, after the, the fall happens, um, they're told, made that promise, uh, speaking, God speaking actually to the devil himself, speaking to Satan there um, in Genesis three fifteen, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan and the woman, and between your seed, that's those who follow and are part of the kingdom of Satan, and her seed, meaning ultimately Christ, but also those that are in the line of believers there. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God makes this promise when, when death was in order, God restrains that, that penalty because he, he's going to make this promise to send the seed of the woman who's going to be the redeemer. He's going to redeem all of God's elect people from their sins. And God had purpose before eternity passed. There's also the covenant of redemption. There's also there's covenant of works, covenant of grace in time and space. But there's also the intertrinitarian covenant of redemption that really is kind of behind everything else that, that takes place in time and space. And you see that. I mean, you, you want me to go into all that, too? I'm kind of just going into everything here, but might as well. You know? <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's very important stuff. Um, one of the things that you see in, in scripture, one of the things that's very clear, you know, my, my mother, when I told my mother I was a Calvinist years ago, uh, she cried <laughs> on the phone and uh, I gave her a copy of um, The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther and then R.C. Sproul's book, Willing to Believe. And she read them both. And my mother's a very, very sharp uh, lady. And then she went back and read the New Testament and she says, how did I not see the doctrine of election everywhere? She said, especially in John's gospel, it's like every other verse teaches. And I said, I know. I said, I went through the same thing, mother. So anyway, she eventually came around and now she really understands the grace of God. It's really been really been cool. <clears throat> but John 637, Jesus tells that huge crushing crowd, the, the crowd of people that he fed, the 5000 that he fed there with five barley loaves and two fish. They follow him over the Sea of Galilee because they want another free lunch. And he tells them, you're not following me because you saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves and had your fill. And then he says to them, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And then verse 38 and 39 are key. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. 
So there you have the incarnate son of God stating the very purpose for which he came into the world. And it was to save all that had been given to him by the father. Okay, you also see it in John 10, another great passage, John 17, verse 2, when he begins his great high priestly prayer, the true Lord's prayer. He said, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So you clearly have this pre-creation decree of election uh, where the son is given by name individually, not, not a class, not, not a faceless class of generic. Well, if you believe you get into this class, it's individuals elected by name from all eternity, uh, given to the Son with a specific purpose to save them from their sins. And all of them were utterly and completely undeserving that God would do this. And that's really the essence of grace. I've said that many times from the pulpit here to help people understand what is the essence of grace? Unconditional election. What does it mean to be saved by grace? If you lose the doctrine of unconditional election, you cannot argue that we're saved by grace alone. You can say that grace is necessary. Grace is indispensable, but it is not grace alone unless you have unconditional election. Another great passage, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. The direct object of the verb choose is us, not Christ. In him is the indirect object of the verb. We are the direct object, the, the people that are elected by God individually from all eternity. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And he goes on from there. Okay, so there you have the, the eternal covenant of redemption. God the Father gives a people to the Son in eternity past and the Son covenants with the Father and the Spirit to, in the fullness of time, be born of a woman, born under the law, to enter into that broken covenant of works and to achieve its righteous requirements and to take its legal sanctions upon himself. So you see, Brother Nate, this is one of the reasons, if you say that grace is the essence of that covenant, um, if you don't have a clear covenant of works, eventually your system is not going to need the imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account. If there's not a clearly delineated covenant of works, then what exactly is Christ fulfilling for us? Okay, so that's it's very important that there, there's not, grace is not the essence of that first covenant. The first covenant is a, is a legal covenant requiring perfect personal obedience on the part of Adam and all of his posterity. And the fact that Adam sinned and fell into sin, that's the reason everybody dies. Now, just in case people say, well, it doesn't say his posterity. You see the effects of the fall in Genesis chapter five, again and again and again and again. What is the constant refrain? And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. I think I forget how many times it's stated that way, but it's pointing out that death sentence that God pronounced on Adam is upon the whole human race, and that's why everybody dies. We all die because of that. So that's the first covenant in time and space. That that's the, the great, as our confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, the special act of providence. God exercised toward man in the estate wherein he was created, he enters into a covenant of life with him. And that's why everybody, myself, you, all your listeners, everyone that, that has ever existed needs to be saved because whether we like it or not, we're still obligated to that covenant. We're still obligated to obey everything that God has commanded us perfectly and personally all the days of our life. And that's why uh, when the Holy Spirit convicts someone of their sins, 
only the true gospel is going to bring them peace. Uh, and I've said many times, I've, I've encouraged people to look at the life of Martin Luther. Because here you have a guy who clearly is being convicted of his sin, of his breaking this covenant here. Um, he's being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And that's why nothing Rome told him to try worked. I mean, he did pilgrimages, fastings, he you know, gave alms, slept in the freezing cold with no blankets. He nearly killed himself with fasting. No matter what he did, it wasn't enough. It, it just did not give him a sense that his sins were forgiven and he had peace with God. But then when he, when he understood the gospel, when he saw Christ, that what God demands from us in that first covenant, in the law, God gives to us freely in the second covenant in the gospel. Okay, so that brings us to the to the next one here. Did you want to make any comments or say anything? I'm just kind of rambling here, but no, no, this is really helpful. <laughs> I, I I think it's good to lay out also like the covenant of redemption, which is <clears throat> an eternity past, right? That's not in the time and space, but right. the covenant of works is, and the covenant of grace is. So yes, yeah, amen. That's right, right on. And one thing I, I encourage people all, all the time, and I you know I've taught the shorter catechism to my my older kids, and we we've taught it here at the church many times. That catechism is just such a great resource to helping understand the, the basic categories of biblical revelation. And people so often are kind of a little bit scared of, of confessions and catechisms because it's like, you know, these, they almost are afraid they're competing with scripture or something like that. Um, but they, they really aren't. They, like B.B. Warfield said, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Larger Catechisms, the way he described them is that the crystallization of the very best in Christian scholarship um, it's the crystallization of the great doctrines of the faith that were won in the great battles and the, the heresies that were fought in the past and defeated and the great creeds that came out were, that were published to show this is what scripture teaches and we, we discard the, these errors. And so those, those great creeds and confessions, especially the ones of the Reformation, are a real treasure trove of truth where our for, Reformed forefathers and even the, the patristic fathers did a lot of incredible work or a lot of great work in the, the word of God to help us understand what it means. And so question seven of the shorter catechism is a really important question. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Next question, how does God execute his decrees? In other words, he created with a plan. He didn't just create and then back away. He created with a plan to glorify himself and to glorify the entire spectrum of his attributes, including his wrath and his anger, and thankfully his mercy and his love and his forgiveness and, and all of that, he's gonna glorify the whole spectrum of his attributes. How does he do that? How does he execute his decrees? In the works of creation and providence. And then what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six 24 hour days uh, and all very good. Um, and then how did God create man, male and female? Who would ever have thought that that section of the catechism would be that important? He got, he made man male and female. How many genders is that? Two. Um, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And then what are God's works of providence? His most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And then what special act of providence did God exercise for a man in the estate when he was created? That's when you have the covenant of life. That God enters into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, um, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of, of death. And then it goes on from there. Did our first parents continue in the estate where they were created? No. Uh, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? What is sin? What is the sinfulness of that estate? What is the misery? And then it, it, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Question 20. And then it says, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace 
to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Okay, and that's the next point there of, of uh, the, the uh, uh, confession, 7.3, man by his fall, having made himself uncapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So God enters into this second covenant and he requires faith in, the, in Jesus Christ. And he promises to give all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So you see there, they're, they're really protecting that it's entirely by grace. And when we speak of a covenant of grace, I, I want to really set us against, because I think the scriptures require this, the idea of a provision. I don't know, Nate, are you familiar with the provisionist perspective and Leighton Flowers and that whole gang? Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we don't believe that. Okay. God has a definite plan and he elects sinners by name individually from all eternity. He gives them to, to his son and, you know, people, I, I actually just preached a sermon on this. People always have so many questions. So does that mean that someone who, who really wants to be saved um, and that they might find out that they're not they're not on God's list. What, what if someone professes to be a Christian and they die and they find out they're not on God's list? The desire to be saved, the true desire to be saved can only come in the heart of one of God's elect people. The, the non-elect are never going to care ultimately about being saved and they wouldn't want to be saved anyway. They have no interest in God. They hate God uh, with every fiber of their soul. And uh, it's very important that we have a, a biblical doctrine of sin and the effects of the fall. Uh, in order to understand the covenant of grace, because one thing that I did not understand, one of the things that was a real hindrance to me understanding um, the grace of God was I'd never really studied um, long ago, never really studied what did the fall do to us? How did it affect us? What happened to me personally, because Adam sinned? And you start looking at the scriptures, you start looking at, at the many, many texts, and they, they constantly use this phrase, not able. No one is able. No one has the capacity to come to Christ. John 6, 44 says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, um, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And it says, nor is he able to know them because they are spiritually discerned. He's not able to understand the things of the spirit. He's not able to come to Christ. Um, it, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, because the carnal mind, that's the person who's unconverted, is hostile towards God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. And there, that phrase, that Greek phrase, udunitai, not able, not able, not able. And I always thought, well, no, it's not that. It's that man's just not willing. He's just not willing to do it. But you see the effects of, of, of sin and the biblical doctrine of original sin is that man is incapacitated by the fall. He has eyes but sees not. He has ears but hears not. He can no more believe in Christ than he can repent. And the thing that's amazing is that you see this played out for us in the, the scriptures in the book of Acts, Acts, think of Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. You think, okay, so belief is not our independent, autonomous contribution to our salvation. God doesn't do a work of 
preemptive grace or prevenient grace to get us all to a neutral point, and then we, we on our own do something? Only the ones that had been appointed to eternal life believed. Only those that are effectually drawn by the Father will believe. Okay, so the covenant of grace is made with um, God the Father, God the Son, and all the elect in him. In fact, another, another great que uh, question from our um, confessional standards. Uh, let's see. Grace is questioned. Yeah, question 31 of the larger catechism. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him all the elect as his seed. Okay, and that's what explicitly what scripture says, Galatians 3:16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. Okay, so all of the elect in him. All right. So that's that's really um, what the, the essence of the, the covenant of grace is there. Um so back to back to the, the confession there. The, okay. Point number three, just to, to review the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Another thing that's really important for your listeners to know, we, you and I, and no human on earth is ever in a position to say someone's definitely not one of God's elect. There were probably people, if they, if they understood election, who would have thought that about the man that died on the cross next to Jesus. And yet that man had been given by name individually to Christ from before the foundation of the world. And God decreed that he was going to glorify his grace and that man's salvation in a special way by saving him just a few moments before he died. And so as long as there's life, there is hope. And we should pray that God will save people. People ask me all the time. Um, if God's already chosen who he's going to say, what's the point of praying? And my, my response is, if he hasn't, what's the point of praying? You know, I mean, why would we ask God to save people if we don't think he can actually do it? And also, our prayers themselves are ordained. They are the means, very often, by which God brings people to Christ. And so when you have a burden to pray for someone's salvation, assault the heavens for that person. And know that God decreed from all eternity that you would feel that burden in that moment and that you would pray those prayers and every word of those prayers in that moment for that person's salvation. The effective prayers of the righteous avail much, it says in James 5, 17, I believe, and following. And so the, God does not decree just who's going to end up in heaven. He decrees every single step by which they're going to get there. And that includes our prayers, our evangelistic work, our tears, uh, our, our fastings for their souls and everything else. Okay, so often people think, well, if God's already determined how it's all gonna how it's all gonna end. What's the point? No, every every step towards that end is decreed by God too, and that's what gives us confidence in doing evangelism. Uh, and that's why, you know, recently I've felt real convicted. I've been going out on the streets and trying to witness to people. I'm not very good at it, um, but I thought, you know what? We've got to go out and do it. And even my little kids are telling me we got to get out and witness. But <laughs> like when your little kids, if your little girls tell you, you got to get out there and do that. And we, I'll go with you. If they have the courage to do it, then man, that, that's real convicting. We got to get out there and tell people the gospel too. Um, so yeah, so God does not decree in the covenant of grace, merely who's going to end up in heaven. He determines how they're going to get there. And that includes every single step of the way. So it's very, very important that your listeners get that too. Okay, now 7.4 of the confession and summarizing this great teaching. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of a testament. 
in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. There's a lengthy discussion that goes into that. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 and following there. But uh, rather than get bogged down with, with all that, I want to get to the, to the next point here. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Okay, now why, why are they saying that? The reason that we were forced to say in the final analysis, there really only are two covenants. Now, the covenant of grace unfolds successively over a, a series of stages, but its essence is always the same. And we know that because every person that has ever been saved was saved in exactly the same way. Okay, so you and I would, would be would stand resolutely opposed to old school dispensationalism. Now, now would your would your listeners know know what what old school dispensationalism what we're talking about, or is that should we talk about that for a minute? Uh, you might that might be a good uh, thing to bring up because I don't even think people know there's these theological systems. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah, old school dispensationalism, without getting overly bogged down in the, in the history. Um, is a system of biblical interpretation that really, it, it arises in the mid-19th century, a fellow named John Nelson Darby and the, the Plymouth Brethren. And one, one of his um, main disciples was a fellow named, um, I think it's Cyrus Ingersoll um, Schofield, C.I. Schofield. And of course, the Schofield Bible. Some of your listeners probably have Schofield Bibles. I mean, there's, there's folks here from the old days that have Schofield uh, reference Bibles. And they popularized the idea that all of history is broken up into seven distinct economies or dispensations. And the old school dispensation, you, you have to describe it like that because there's what's called progressive dispensationalism. The, the thing is, covenant theology has so thoroughly criticized and discredited old school dispensationalism that I'm not sure a whole lot of that even exists anymore. But what, what they, they, the old school teaches is that people used to be saved in different ways under these different covenant administrations. Like in the time of Moses, it was, they were saved by keeping the law, by, by keeping the 10 commandments. But thankfully now we're in the age of grace. So now we, we can be saved by grace. We don't have to keep the law in order to go to heaven. The fact is your listeners, I would just encourage, encourage them. When you think about the Bible, there's the old Testament and the new Testament. It is not old Testament law versus new Testament gospel. That is not what we're talking about here at all. There is covenant of works and covenant of grace right there in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And you see the two concepts running side by side throughout the rest of redemptive history. Okay, so people that were saved prior to the coming of Christ were saved exactly the way that we are. And Brother Nate, here's the thing that people have got to get. Man's problem before the coming of Christ and after the coming of Christ is the same. God can't save people in a different way before Jesus gets here. He can't. Because everyone that's ever been saved after the fall happens has been born again, has had the righteousness of Christ imputed to their account, um, has been granted repentance unto life and saving faith in the, the either the anticipated Messiah, as they did in the Old Testament, or the Messiah who's already come, like, like we're on the other side of the cross. But it was always either looking forward to the coming of Christ or looking back on the coming of Christ. And the thing is, that's exactly the way Jesus understood the Old Testament. That's the way that the apostles understand the, the Old Testament. Paul even makes the amazing statement, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. I still remember where I was on the bus. And I was I, actually, I just wanted to show your listeners. Westminster Confession, a commentary by A.A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge, reading this on the bus on my way to work when I was still a computer programmer. And Hodge makes the point 
that Abraham believed the same gospel promise that we do today. And I was like, really? And I remember looking up Galatians 3.8. It says, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. I thought, wow. And then Jesus himself says, and Hodge cites this passage, John 8.58, when Jesus is arguing, John 8.56, when he's arguing with his opponents at the Feast of Tabernacles, he tells them, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Indeed, he saw it and was glad. What was Abraham looking forward to? The Messiah, the Savior. That's what Jesus thought. And I, I've always told people, encouraged people, you want to you wanna agree with him. When the way you understand the Old Testament, agree with what the Holy Spirit inspired his apostles uh, to say about it. Okay, another one, Israel, they're in the wilderness. And in, in, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says about them that the Israelites had the gospel preached to them, but they did not combine the hearing of it with faith. And I remember thinking, so what was what was the gospel then? I've been doing a series of sermons through the book of Exodus lately. The gospel is everywhere in the book of Exodus, like going verse by verse through, like all we're all the way to um, Exodus 13, where you have uh, Exodus 12, you have the Passover instituted, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Boy, I'll tell you, that's justification and sanctification. The Feast of Passover taught them the gospel. The people of Israel, they did not prick their fingers and squeeze blood to have it smeared on the doorposts. It was only the blood of that lamb. And they didn't put post-it notes on the doorposts either with their good works. That taught them that it's, it is the grace of God. And of course, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then the next thing he teaches them is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that really was a way of telling them, you leave the leaven of Egypt, its worldview, its religions, its sins, its lusts, you leave all of it in Egypt. And you're going to come out and be unleavened now. Okay, and then there was the redemption of the first one. He taught them about, about salvation by grace. He taught them about sanctification. He taught them about redemption. Okay, now the Westminster Confession, picking up on all of that, says under the law, this one covenant of grace was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, all those animal sacrifices, they, they all pointed forward to the one grand sacrifice that would be offered once and take away their sins forever. The Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, now listen to this part, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Okay, so it's not Old Testament works, New Testament grace. It's Old Testament grace, New Testament grace, and you have covenant of works, covenant of grace going side by side all the way through. Okay, so you have Christ uh, fulfilling the, the demands of the law, the demands of the covenant of works um, for us. And those Old Testament believers, they were looking forward to his coming, just like we look back to his coming. Now, one passage that really illustrates this, this passage here really, to me, was the end of every last bit of dispensational theology that was left in my bloodstream once upon a time. Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four is such a key passage because Paul brings up how Abraham was justified before God by grace through faith alone, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. Okay, that's before the law. Then he brings up in verses six through eight, how was David saved after the Sinaitic covenant, after the Mosaic covenant, by grace through faith, having righteousness imputed to him? How are we saved? By grace through faith, by having righteousness imputed to us. And so there's one covenant of grace. It's administered differently. Um, there's much more clarity 
uh, in our understanding of the Old Testament patriarchs. So often people say, you know, boy, wouldn't it have been great to live back in the days of Moses and Abraham and Isaac Jacob and to have seen all that stuff. I remember reading John Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion said, God has favored us over the patriarchs because we have the thing that they were looking forward to. Those men would have given anything to have had the New Testament. You know, to have this in this nicely bound leather Bible, the whole thing, and all those promises fulfilled and explained, it is a treasure that whose value cannot be overstated. We take for granted that we have these Bibles. We have all of divine revelation. And I remember reading that from Calvin going, man, you better not waste this Bible <laughs> um, that, that God put in your lap. Uh, this nice, this excellent scholarly translation of, of all of God's word, uh, because it's, it's such a treasure to have all of it together. We have um, the full explanation um, uh, of everything God promised, uh, and yet there's not two covenants of grace, there's, there's one. Okay, now, just to get to 7.6 here, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant was, is dispensed are the preaching of the word, in the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, and administer with more simplicity and less outward glory. And I think one of the reasons for that is so you can have an international church. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and we can worship anywhere. We can worship in caves. We can worship in nice churches. Okay. It's less outward glory and fewer in number. Yet in them, it is held forth in more fullness and evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. And it's called the New Testament. Now, listen to this last sentence. Westminster Confession 7.6, such a critical point here. It's, it really is illustrated in Romans 4. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one in the same under various dispensations. Now, that doesn't mean dispensationalism. It's simply saying the one covenant of grace, it was administered differently before the coming of Christ than it is after. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have a temple. Uh, there's no need, thankfully, for uh, animal sacrifices. We don't circumcise. We don't keep the feast of Passover or anything like that. But it's the same covenant. And I remember uh, Kim Rotobarger from the White Horse Sin. He had a really helpful way. I, remember, I still remember him saying this, and it really helped me. He said, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's a difference in degree of knowledge. It's not a difference in kind. It's not an essentially different covenant. It's the same covenant, but it's a difference in degree. We know more about it. We have more of the details than they did, than they do. Okay, so there's not two different covenants of grace. There's only one, but it's administered under various dispensations. And, and just, just so your listeners have, have heard the word of God, listen to Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And here Paul cites his, his favorite Old Testament verse, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness, or it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You go, to, you go to work, you do your job, you get your paycheck, your boss is not doing you a favor. He owes you that money. And yet, in, biblically, who does God justify? It's such, an, it's such a scandalous thing to the natural man. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The person who's working to try to get to heaven, they're not going to be justified by God. It's only to the one who does not work. It's actually a participle. The one not working, but believing on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, you might think, how can God do that? How can God justify the wicked while they're still wicked? 
And the answer is imputation, the legal transfer. Okay, and he says it in verse six, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes or legally credits righteousness apart from works. So I would just encourage your listeners, think about this. When we talk about Jesus died for our sins on the cross, we all believe that. I think Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse in our behalf. 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore in his body our sins upon the cross. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that our sin or our guilt was infused into him. Jesus remains sinlessly perfect throughout in himself, but he's legally treated as if he committed all of the sins of all his people. They are, there is a legal imputation, a legal crediting of all of our sin, all that guilt to his account while he's nailed to the cross. You know, and you get the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get him bearing the wrath of God against all of our sins because he's legally being treated that way. And we, when we believe in him and we're, we're not working for our salvation, we're not trying to earn it by anything. We simply believe on Christ. God imputes righteousness. Romans 4, 6, he imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from, from Psalm 32, the opening two verses. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So my sins will not be imputed to me. They will not be legally charged to me. Why? Because it is Christ who died. Paul says in Romans 8, 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, moreover, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. God will not legally charge my sins against me because they already held Christ responsible for them at the cross. And to me, I, I can't think of anything that, that is a, a greater motivation to, to live a godly life than that. He was legally held responsible for, the, for my whole life of rebellion, for the things I've done today, for the ways I have failed to conform to his law today. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's the essence of the covenant of grace, that Christ does it all. We simply receive it, like Luther said, the beggar's empty hand of faith. Okay, then he, so think about what we just learned from Romans 4 here. So Abraham, who's 430 years before the Mosaic covenant's even given, before you have the, the Ten Commandments even given, he's justified by faith and not by works. David, after the law is given, is justified by faith and not by works. And then he goes into a discussion just pointing out that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Circumcision doesn't come until Genesis 17. Abraham's justified back in Genesis 15 when he finally believes the promise of God. So it wasn't by circumcision either. And Paul, make sure you, you don't miss that point either because the Jews thought that too. They believed in, I guess, circumcisional regeneration or circumcisional justification, something like that. But then he goes on to say, at the end of Romans 4, verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us, meaning the, the believers there in Rome and you and me today and your, your listeners that know Christ. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so that that's why we speak of covenant of works, covenant of grace, and it unfolds in various stages and more is revealed about it. I mean, brother, think about um, in the Mosaic covenant, you have the, the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that one day a prophet will come in the likeness of Moses and him you shall hear. Remember, a lot of the Jews wondered if John the Baptist was that guy. And when they asked him, are, are, you, are you the prophet? He said, no. 
Okay, and yet when Jesus finally, when he goes to the cross, dies, rises again from the dead, ascends back to heaven, Peter in Acts chapter 2 cites Deuteronomy 18, okay, and says, this guy is that guy. He's the prophet that was prophesied there. Um, also, um, when I believe it's when, when Gabriel is speaking to um, the Virgin Mary um, and tells her he will give to him the throne of his father, David. So the Davidic covenant emphasizes that Christ will execute the office of a king. Okay, Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the office of a prophet. Okay, so prophet and then priest, the idea of Jesus uh, uh, being in the order of Melchizedek. Remember, you know, the just like two verses there in Genesis, they pop out of nowhere, there's Melchizedek. But then you get this huge explanation of him in, in Hebrews chapter seven. Thankfully, we have that. Otherwise, it would be really hard to, to really figure out why he's there. But really, it's, it's, a, it's a type. The fact that Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy is really a type of the eternality of Christ. That Christ um, is, is the eternal God. And he holds that priesthood unchangeably. That's one of the reasons um, it really makes my, my skin bristle when I hear uh, ministers refer to themselves as priests. <laughs> there's, there's only one priest in the whole universe, um, and it ain't you. Okay, it's Christ. He, he's the only one that holds that priesthood. So the different covenants in the Old Testament unfold the promise, but it's always the same gospel. It's always the same way of salvation uh, for everybody. So, so there you go. So there's kind of kind of the gist. How are we doing on on time? Okay, good. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Ten minutes. So yeah, we're good. Ten minutes left. Man, I haven't let you get a word in edgewise, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is kind of what I wanted. <laughs> I just wanted you to go with it and. And teach us about well, it's super helpful that you kind of gave a, a a way of reference for people to follow too, like working through, you know, Westminster yes. chapter, or, uh, yeah, chapter seven. I'm assuming yeah. is it one through section one, seven, one yeah. through seven or something. No, one through six. There, there's six points under oh, chapter six, seven. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there's six six points under there. Yeah, yeah. You're the full so. subscriptionist, so you know you probably have it all memorized. <laughs> I'm working on memorizing a shorter catechism good. right now. Yeah, so. It will serve you well, my brother. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. Good. Yeah, but no, this is super helpful. And, um, you know, just, I think for me, it was when I realized that the new, like, I don't know how this happens, but it happens to a lot of people is you read the New Testament. And the Old Testament is just kind of this, like, it's over, like, there's nothing about it that's has anything to do with the new. It's all about, you know, someone hands you a Gideon Bible, read John, you know, or, you know, yeah, and, right. And we read the whole New Testament with really complete ignorance in regards to the Old Testament, other than just being like, oh, there's some prophecies being fulfilled here. And that's about as far as you get, right? But you don't yeah. see that continuity all throughout the unfolding redemptive plan of God, you know? Right. And yeah. I mean, maybe there's some things like, why, why do you think it is that we, we miss this? Because I, I, I see it as a common thread just we don't read our bibles enough <laughs> or... i think uh, i was gonna say that it's also i think it's also because of the the influence of dispensational thinking um i mean people need to know the, the left behind series and all of that uh grows right out of really the the real old school schofield um dispensationalism stuff which really sees the old testament that's a different dispensation it's not really relevant to today and so that's you're right people don't don't see it's important and yet the thing is, the Old Testament, uh, Jesus really believed that he was the major subject of the Old Testament. I mean, he says that again and again. You think of uh, Luke chapter 24 when he's talking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things in the scriptures about himself. 
And people, I've heard people say many times, boy, I'd love to have a, a, you know, a recording of what he said. The thing is, in the book of Acts, in the sermons the apostles preached, that is how they, he taught them to read the Old Testament. Because they cite constantly from the Psalms, and they cite from Deuteronomy, and they cite from Joel and the prophets and Isaiah 53 and things like that. In fact, like you said, man, if people read Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth evangelist. There's so much gospel in this book. Think about Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with the ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You think, that's the gospel right there uh, in Isaiah. And you see it through all the prophets. They they all have these amazing prophecies that one day God's going to provide an atonement for all their sins. And, you know, it, it's there. People just need to read it. They need to read it with those Christ-centered glasses on. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then as far as, you know, I know there's, there's, you know, the 1689 and then the Westminster mm-hmm. Confession. Maybe what are some of the, uh, I don't know why, unfortunately, it happens to be the assumption that the Baptists are right about all this stuff, but, <laughs> but that's what I thought, you know, um, yeah. but um I mean, what are some of the differences, you know, I'm not trying to be polemical or anything. I love my <laughs> Baptists, you know, they're good, brothers, but I just wish they would uh, see more continuity, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think yeah. um, I've read, you know, I've read Fred Malone, you know, the baptism of disciples alone. And I've, I've got other, the stuff that at least the stuff that's in print um, once upon a time, you know, long ago, I, I really, like when I, I, came to the doctrines of grace and understood election and God's sovereignty and things like that. That was really an encouraging thing and a huge blessing. My assumption was that um, the, the Baptists finished what the reformers started, but failed to finish um, that they, they went the rest of the way and got rid of the sacralism and got rid of the church state stuff where, you know, citizenship in a, in a country was done by baptism and, and things like that. They got rid of all that. So they were ahead of their time. And looking, listening to, to the guys out there that are, you know, reformed or particular Baptist, whatever, I kept waiting for the, the knockout punch to come. And it just, it just never came. And what I could see, you know, reading A. a. Hodge and reading Lewis Burkhoff, the, the thing that the strength of reformed theology that that's confessional, um, that where you stick to the, the original confessions, not, not the, not people that took the Westminster confession and tried to make it congregational or tried to make it Baptist or, or whatever. The strength of that position to me has always been its ability to read the text of scripture and just let it say what it says. And I don't have to engage. Like I, I used to look, for example, at all the household passages and my, my mentality was, okay, just pitch them one at a time and I can smack them all out of the park. And then eventually I was kind of, I was, irritated by that thinking why do i have to come up with a a way of explaining all this and then reading burkoff and reading bb warfield and them saying look it's very clear the gospel has not changed the essence of the gospel has not changed what is circumcision a sign of the gospel it's a sign of justification by faith it's the sign of regeneration that's the way that deuteronomy speaks about it circumcise your hearts unto the lord Paul says in Romans chapter 4, 11, it's one of the key passages. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. And I thought, well, 
if Abraham had been a Baptist, he would have said, well, why would I give a sign of justification by faith to my infant children? And, and the reason for that is God works through the family. God um, has always taught us the solidarity of the family unit in the administration of the sign. And that's why if, if, the, if our Baptist brethren are, are right, and I love my Baptist brethren, I have learned a lot from many Baptists over, over the years. If they were really right, I would expect to see okay, an individual believes the gospel there in the book of Acts, but believes it, they are baptized, and that's the end of the account. You move on to the next story. And yet, repeatedly, you see that individual believes, but then their household is baptized. You know, think of Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus will say, this is a passage, jumped, I remember this jumping off the page when I was really wrestling with this. Zacchaeus, we're not told anything about his family, whether he even had a family. And yet, when it's clear that he's been converted, Jesus, I, I would expect Jesus to say, today, salvation has come to this man. And yet, that's not what he says. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. And so they speak that way. The apostles speak that way. Um, when uh, I believe it's the, the when it's the, the Philippian jailer asks, uh, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" They say, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household." I remember thinking, "I would I would never say that to somebody <laughs> like I myself. I would never say that. I mean, they didn't even know if the guy had a household, and yet." The, the, the concept, the Old Testament concept of the solidarity of the family unit in the administration of the covenant sign is, I think, is clearly something that carries over into the New Testament. Now, many people say, and I, as I myself used to say, circumcision was a sign of genealogical connection to Israel. It was a sign that you were a physical de descendant of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and that's all that it was. And then reading the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, at, at the institution of Passover, where you have the nation of Israel just about to come out of Egypt, it says in Exodus 12, 48, God uh, giving them these instructions, he says, when a stranger, when a, a Gentile dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Okay, so when a stranger, when one guy comes and makes a profession of faith, he wants to keep the Passover, he wants to worship the one true God, what are they supposed to do? Circumcise him? Nope. His whole household, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. I remember thinking, okay, clearly circumcision is not an ethnic badge; it is not a sign of genealogical connection. It's the it's the rite of initiation to the church. And when one guy wanted to join the church, one Gentile wanted to join the church, his whole house had to be circumcised. You see the same thing with the. The, Paul baptized the household of Crispus and Gaius, and he says, I don't know if I baptized any other households. So it doesn't look to me like this is something that there's radical discontinuity. And, and the, the thing is, I think our Baptist brethren need to, need to own that. They are saying that a, a pretty significant change has happened, that, that God is looking at this completely individualistically now. It is not households anymore. It is only individuals who make profession of faith. And just what, when I, I took, I listened to, um, Lincoln Duncan's uh, seminary course on covenant theology. Have you ever listened to that, Nate? I actually have listened through that. Okay. Yeah. Remember when he, he points out when Peter says there at Pentecost, the promises to you and to your children and to as many as are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Lincoln Duncan said in those lectures, if Peter is trying to, to make clear that this is an area of discontinuity, Duncan says, that is literally the dumbest thing he could have said. <laughs> like, 
like if it would have been the promises to you and to as many as are far off, as many as are effectually called. What is this you and your children stuff? It's borrowing the, the language of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15. I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. What's amazing is even the prophecies about the new covenant in the, the prophets of the Old Testament, even when they're prophesying about the new covenant, it's you and your descendants, you and your descendants. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I saw one that popped out at me. I think it was in, um, you know, often people quote, I think, is it Ezekiel 32 about I'll put a heart of flesh and yeah. And uh, yeah. a lot of progressive covenantalism guys love that verse. It's like their proof text for everything. But, <laughs> but yeah. it's funny if you keep reading through Ezekiel, because I just actually read through Ezekiel maybe a, a last week or so. But um, I think it was in chapter 33. Now, don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere after that initial uh, promise that God gives. He says very similar things. I think he's talking about, obviously, still the same new covenant. And he, then he talks about, you and your children and the generations after you and i'm like oh that's interesting yeah Yeah, because i never even noticed that that came up after that um because that usually ezekiel is kind of like the proof text for uh uh you know a regenerated community a believers only community right and um even ezekiel disagrees and you know and (laughs) says just a few verses later no you know, just the um, the constant language of the family unit, even all throughout. Yeah. I mean, when I read, because I, I've been reading through the whole Old Testament again, and I just yeah. everything's popping out now. You know, it's just like yeah. like you're you're talking about your mother. Like, how did how did I miss all this? It was right here yeah. the whole time, and yeah. um, reading through like Deuteronomy and like, oh, you know, you and your children and your children teach your yeah. children, and I'm just like, it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, and then, it is. Yeah, and then you mentioned Acts two. That was like. Uh, when I heard that from Lincoln Duncan and even better from the Bible, <laughs> yeah, when right, I see right. that connection with the Abrahamic covenant, that yes. this will be an everlasting covenant uh, for yeah. you and your offspring. And then, yeah, like you said, Peter quotes that exact same new covenant promise. And that's the yeah. first sermon being preached in the new covenant community. It's just like, boom, it was just yeah. like, wow, how'd I miss this? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is every, every Christian parent, you know, whether they're, whether they're Baptist or not, we all we all know that we're supposed to teach our kids to pray and that they, they should come to church with us and we should we should have them sing hymns and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is worship and prayer and, and all of that are the property only of the regenerate. And yet having the covenant theology and seeing the, the solidarity of the household unit and baptizing your children and bring, making them part of the visible church which is you know that's part of our constitution that's what we think scripture teaches the visible church has always been those who profess the true religion and their households or their children okay we have a category that enables us to make sense out of all right from the time my kids are able to speak i'm going to have them pray when they sin we're going to pray and ask for god's forgiveness you know i'm not going to wait until i see are there signs that regeneration has taken place you raise them in the christian way of life but our, our theology of the, the household unit gives us a context in which we can make sense of that without, you know, thinking, well, can they really do that? I mean, we don't know if they're, if they're regenerate yet. Well, you evangelize them along the way. You don't assume they're Christians. Every time they disobey, every disciplinary opportunity is an opportunity to, to share the gospel with them and to call them to repent and believe and to let them know you're not a Christian because mommy and daddy are. 
And yet they're to be just as they were in the Old Testament. The households were circumcised and brought in. And the head of that household, just like Abraham, was, was commanded to teach their children to do, to do justice and mercy and to, to know God and to believe his promise. We're supposed to do the same today. It's Old Testament teaching. It's New Testament teaching. So of all the areas of discontinuity, that certainly does not appear to be one of them. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I know we got to wrap up, but I was just going to say, you know, I think the fear is often that we, uh, people often think that, that the sign is actually regenerating people or is actually the thing converting people. And obviously that seems very Catholic or Lutheran yeah. or, you know, and I, I understand, you know, um, yeah. those are the same things I thought, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's sad that Ju the Jewish people made the same error that many many Christians made, especially early on, and, and even to this day, uh, still make. Um, but it's not God's fault um, if people um, misunderstand uh, the sign. Uh, it's not His fault. It's it's a sign that points to the spiritual reality. And but we know, like like you said, we know from the Old Testament, and there are many people who were circumcised who clearly were not part of God's elect. And John Calvin makes the point in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Every argument that people make against infant baptism, in principle, if it were true, would, would work also against infant circumcision, because the two signs signify exactly the same spiritual reality. Hmm. And to me, that really was the end of the debate. Once I saw circumcision means the same thing baptism does, and by divine wisdom, it was commanded to be given to infants who could neither understand nor profess their faith. It's like, okay, I'm not going to argue anymore. So. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, man. Well, I want to be faithful to your time frame here. And um, uh, so if my listeners are interested in maybe um, looking into this more, what are some maybe books material you'd recommend for maybe someone at a lay level, maybe more average, you know, and then yeah. you can also share, um, maybe tell my listeners where they can check you out as well. Cause you do have, okay, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, I have the, my YouTube channel, maybe you can put a link to that in your, in the description. Yeah. Um, A.A. A. Hodge, uh, this book, The Westminster Confession, um, is great. If you just if you just read the, his comments on chapter seven, that'll really help you uh, about covenant theology to understand it. Um, another one, ju just the section of Lewis Burkhoff's, not not his large systematic theology, but the the one that was made uh, for more more for lay people, a manual of Christian doctrine by Lewis Burkhoff has great stuff on covenant theology. Very good. Goes through all the texts, goes through some of the historical stuff. That's one thing Burkhoff is really good at um, is that uh, Old Palmer Robertson, Christ of the Covenants is a, is a classic book. It's much more detailed. Um, it's not really, I wouldn't recommend that to a lay person per, per se, who's wanting to kind of get to cut their teeth on it. Um, Robertson wrote a shorter one a much shorter one called Understanding Covenant Theology. That's a little paperback that's very good. And, and one more book that really gets covenant theology really um, distilled well is a short paperback called Confessing Christ by Calvin Knox Cummings. And uh, I can maybe, I'll email you the links to, sure, to those. Yeah. You can post them in there. So good stuff. And then um, I will add a link uh, for uh, Patrick's YouTube as well. So you guys can go, definitely go check out his stuff. He has some excellent stuff. I know he, you're, it seems like you're working through like multiple books. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to do too many things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Story of yeah. our lives. Right. Uh, yeah, but I know you're doing a, a Christianity and liberalism by Machen, yeah. I believe, yes. and a book on depression with uh, Spurgeon. Yeah. Um, yes. yep. And um, 
a little bit of uh, attack and so get, getting after uh, NT right a little bit. I think either yeah. in the past or still a little bit here and there, but yeah. yeah um, I'm just going to horror videos show up on my YouTube. <laughs> and I'm like, don't, don't click on it. Don't click on it. Yeah. Click the nice ones first. Yeah, yeah, get used to me first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this has been great, Patrick. Um, yeah. We'll definitely have to do something like this again in, uh, yeah, in the future. And um, yeah. did you have any concluding thoughts you wanted to share with the listeners? Um, the, the main thing that w- with everything, w- if you're ordained minister of the gospel, I know you have the same burden. You just want people to understand the text of the Bible and you want them to know the heart and the mind of God. And covenant theology is not, you know, a system that's out there that you might, you know, impose on scripture. It really comes right up out of the text and, and really, really helps make sense of what the word says and like you said when you understand these basic categories when when you read through the scriptures again you see that these are god-given things it really really helps you organize the material that's in scripture and makes it much less susceptible to misunderstanding and that's always the goal of a good teacher is to is to bring better understanding of scripture so amen yeah Um, i appreciate the opportunity to talk to to you and your listeners brother it's been fun yeah awesome man definitely won't be the first time lord willing and um uh, yeah, so uh, once again, this was Patrick Hines. Um, be sure to check out the link I'll add in the description. And until next time, God bless.